Hey everyone, uh, Holly and M here. Before we jump in to this episode, we wanted to take a minute to real time address something that we've gotten feedback on and that we've been thinking about ourselves. Yeah, I mean, so the hardest thing about having a podcast or one of them is that you can only do one episode at a time. And that means you have to only share one story at a time and you wait a week between sharing each story and it rolls out slowly. <laughs> and <laughs> and so we have the intention and the plan to share all kinds of stories representing different socioeconomic situations, people who can't quit things, who want to quit things, mm. just really a, a diverse range of stories. And we want you guys to know that that's something that we're planning and that we're committed to doing. Yeah. Like, as Em said, one of the hardest pieces of this is it's not just like, whose stories do we tell? It's also, you know, I'm pulled to doing more intellectual pursuits and like getting to like the bottom of why we quit things. And Emily is way more into like the you know, first person narrative and really mm -hmm. showcasing all these different wonderful, weird stories of how people navigate becoming different people or having different behaviors or it's, it's just, there's been already, there's, there's so much to consider. And so I think we really appreciate those of you that have reached out to make sure it's not just, we don't want to just share famous people um, or extremely successful people because that's not real. And I think both Emily and I have committed our careers to, to making sure that like, we're not just, you know, like doing the thing that makes everyone feel worse about themselves or that makes people feel that they aren't represented or included yeah. um, in the storyline. Yeah. Yeah. So if you want to help with that, like this is where it gets really important. We actually have put out calls for teachers on social media and on Patreon and it's, we'd get, you know, our engagement's a little low right now. I <laughs> Instagram is... <laughs> Instagram's but, determined to, to, to ruin, <laughs> get in our to way. To ruin us. Yeah. Um, no, but I, I think like we actually have put out calls before. We've wanted, we've been looking for teachers who are, who are not quitting because of both socioeconomic issues, but also because who else will teach the kids? We are interested in if you yourself have a story that is an interesting story to tell that also brings us different perspective. We are interested in it. And so if you want to nominate yourself or nominate someone, someone you, know you know of, mm -hmm. or even just like recommend, like, can you cover this topic? We read all submissions and we would love to hear from you. We do need your help on this. And so if you go to patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash quitted, in the open notes, open to the public, not behind a paywall, you will find a link. It's the only post I think we have or one of two posts we have on that page that will allow you to submit your story, someone else's story. And again, if you want to hear a range of stories and make sure that like we're covering all sides, you can be part of that. And we want you to. We want you to be part of that. Yeah, so, we do. Yeah. I, I think yeah. like that's what's so fun about this is that we're just learning and we're here for the ride. And just like you, we want to explore a topic we don't know everything about from all sides. On to the show. On to the show. Not giving up can often be a proxy, I think, for telling yourself that you don't have choices, that you don't have options. I've talked about this before, about how sometimes staying the path can almost be the passive choice, right? Because you're on that path. Um, and as soon as we start to see people, again, where the stakes around their success are so high and they are walking away, I think for the rest of us, you know, wherever we are in sort of our little personal success paradigm, um, it makes us wonder oh, can I quit too? And after you know that you can quit, you have to start wondering, should I quit? And I think those kinds of conversations that we might not even want to have with ourselves, they can be scary and uncomfortable. And so I think that's, that's what was going on there as people were seeing these women making these scary decisions and actually having the courage to make them and then wondering what that meant for themselves. I'm Emily McDowell. And I'm Holly Whitaker. And this is Quitted, a podcast about 
quitting. Good morning, Holly. Hi. It's, uh, hi. It's hi. noon here. It's oh. noon. So I don't know. I still say, why am I, I still say you? morning. <laughs> I still say morning at noon, just like I say happy new year in February. Uh, so yeah, no, I get it. Um, yeah. So good morning. Hi. Um, I mean, it seems like morning cause I'm still in my robe. So there we go. You know, that that's a thing that could confuse you anyway. Um, what's going on? When was oh, the last time we did one of these? It's been a minute. Yeah. It's been a minute since it's been we a did couple it. weeks. Yeah. We haven't recorded in a couple of weeks. You were in Italy. Yeah. And, um, yeah. You were in Poland. I was. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> welcome. <laughs> what do we have to Should talk start about? Should we just go into Wait. it? Like, this seems very boring. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think like, of Wait. like anecdotal stuff. Um, let's see. The squirrels are back. Like the black squirrels are back. We have to do three yeah. intros today, so um, <laughs> we better think of some. I uh, I can talk about sleeping. You've I been slept sleeping. Last night. I slept last night for the first time in all week in the in four days. Okay. I am you hadn't slept having, in four days. Not really. I mean, I have slept, but I've slept very minimally, and mm-hmm. I am having sleeping problems, which I have had perpetually as part of perimenopause and I also lean towards insomnia anyway. Yeah. But for a minute it looked like they were solved when I started taking estrogen and progesterone mm-hmm. 3 mm-hmm. months ago. And now they're back. Now the and sleeping like, what problems is it? are back. And like what is it? I have sleeping problems too or I had. I don't have them anymore. Um but what do yours look like? Is it like you go like Mine, you're tired and then you hit the sheets and you're like fuck um and then you can't fall asleep or you wake yeah, up Yeah, so like early? I have a window so like, well, it's both. So I have a basically I have a sleep window that if I get tired and if I don't fall asleep in the window, then mm. like if I miss it, if I stay up and watch TV too late or whatever, and then mm-hmm. I and then I miss the window, then I struggle to fall asleep. Yeah. But the bigger problem for me is waking up at three or four in the morning and then just not going back to sleep, just not being able to at mm-hmm. all. Yeah. And Both are um, awful. Both are awful. And uh, yeah, so I've been going through that and this was like day four and I, which means that last night I was like a zombie and I got in bed at 745. <laughs> oh my and I didn't God. actually Wait, at fall night? asleep at last night. night. Yeah. At PM, and I feel like that's night. even worse because like. Wait, did you fall asleep at 745? No, 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 right. no. I Because then you just are, you're just there for four hours. Like, yeah, I mean, to I fall read asleep. a, well, I wasn't, I read a book. I caught up on We Crashed. Mm. And in bed, and I read a book. Mm-hmm. I know oh. I shouldn't watch TV in mm. bed. Passing That's so my much one judgment right now. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's just our couch is really uncomfortable, uh-huh. and I vastly prefer watching TV in bed. And I know I said the phrase sleep hygiene to Ugh. Daniel last night, and he was like, "If you ever say that again, I will like." have you arrested fine like, I, fine you all can, right you're but not I, allowed to say that and i was as, like <laughs> but that is bad sleep hygiene so i i have struggled and it's like to like the detriment of my health like severe detriment of my health which i i know you know the weight of that but i spent the last many years trying to fix my sleep problems and i finally fixed them and it came down to i have like impeccable sleep hygiene and i know like i hate myself <laughs> as well um, but my keep my Just room at 50 degrees. Like, I keep it mm-hmm. like I keep it cool. I keep it dark. I wear earplugs. I have no devices in my room. I don't even charge my phone in my room anymore. I have this like 80s digital clock so it doesn't give off like a huge ray of light in my room. I have lavender in there. I have satin pillowcases. I've done the whole I I you do all I the do things. the whole I do like thing. 80% of those things. I really yeah. do. But Emily, you're taking – I'm sorry. I'm I'm such a judgmental bitch, but I'm just like, that's why you're not. But I know it's not the whole reason why. <laughs> but I but wear – it's just because I know I did that for years and it actually – I mean, it really fucks with me. Um, mm, I have blue blockers. Even I wear blue light blocker glasses. Yeah. I look like Jack Nicholson from like 8 p.m. on yes. every night. Yes, but it still doesn't. It still doesn't. Because you're because you're like basically like tricking your anyway. I'm gonna get off my soapbox. I had this whole conversation yesterday at my the co working place that I'm working at up here with one of my friends, and I was telling him, 
like all the things that I do. And I'm just like, I'm that girl. And like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry to anybody that talks to me about sleep problems because because I've, I've just like spent years trying to fucking fix it. And it's like, it does require, for me, I found it's required like, like a really militant kind of approach to. I think that's how it is. I mean, from what I understand, that is kind of the deal. Because, yeah. you know, I've done a lot of Oh, I know. Research. <laughs> I've spent a lot of time awake looking at my phone in the middle of the night about why I'm not sleeping. And it's like, don't look at your phone. Don't look at your the phone. Irony. Yeah, the I irony. The irony. I know. I know. I know. I mean, it's just really hard. I think like there's like it's it's a chronic issue in our society. Yeah. Oh, my God. We've been talking about sleeping for so long. All right. Are we ready to get into what the fuck this episode is? I'm so yeah, sorry, let's do everyone. It. Okay. Um, actually, this was supposed to be one of our first episodes, and then we ended up putting it into – plugging it into our storyline a little bit differently to go with Natalie and Aki as a bit of a, a COVID kind of – series. And I think that, you know, Lindsay Krauss, she's a journalist. She's worked at, she's a staff writer at the New York Times. She is someone that has written, uh, she's an athlete, so she's written extensively about athleticism and also has covered things like Naomi Osaka, um, not doing press or Simone Biles uh, withdrawing from the Olympics. And I have over time, I knew her work before because uh, she wrote a really fascinating article that we talk about in this. But she also, she and I talked about a year ago about a potential op-ed I was going to write for the New York Times. So I know her a bit. I follow her work. And I have really appreciated her growing coverage on quitting culture. And so we brought her on to set up the scene about are changing views toward quitting. And it's interesting because she does look at this not necessarily through quitting our jobs, but she really looks at it through this lens of um, really of, uh, through sports naturally. Mm-hmm. And that's involved evolved to cover a bit more of what's happening culturally. Yeah. I was introduced to her work through her op docs, actually, because she's also produced several really wonderful op docs. What's an op doc? <sighs> I thought you'd never heard that term. It's a little documentary. It's a little opinion documentary. The New York yeah. Times produces this series that are that are she's done a couple about quitting various facets of thing of culture. She did one about grieving our old normal. So there are these little mini documentaries that are like five, six minutes long that the New York Times produces that she has conceived of and been behind and that are really fantastic. Yeah, it's quitting season is another one. And I recommend everybody look her up if you have access to the New York Times. Grieving Our Old Normal made me cry. It's a, it's a really emotional short documentary about how much we have lost in the last few years due to the pandemic. I think it's also worth noting that Lindsay just recently, just a few days ago, brought the Oscar home, picked up the Oscar for the New York Times. The New York Times won their first Oscar ever for the op doc called The Queen of Basketball, which Lindsay Krauss was a co-executive producer of and also conceived of this series. So she's incredible. We got really lucky getting her on for this discussion. And I hope that you love it. And I also hope that you take this opportunity to dig into some of her writings on quitting. Because again, it's not just about quitting our jobs. It really is, I think, a fascinating topic. All of the behavior that we've seen emerge in the last few years from really popular things like Simone Biles, or not popular things, but really visible things like Simone Biles. Mm -hmm. Well-known, right? To some of the 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 you know lesser known trends that have been taking place it's just her work is is great and great that sounds so silly but her her work is great and i appreciate her voice and opinion very much absolutely um and so before we get into this just a reminder that quitted is a weekly podcast we are self-produced. We don't have advertisers. We're not on a network. We make the show with the help of our patrons. And if you would like to support us financially, we 
have vast appreciation for you. Um, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash quitted. If you are liking the podcast, we also would really love you to go and just take two seconds and rate it or even more 17 seconds and review it. Um, it mm. really, really helps with our, <laughs> well, okay. Mm. I mean, if your review is like, this podcast is great. Listen, um, I'm not telling you how to do a review. I am just saying that <laughs> you're just giving like it really, really helps crazy expectations for how long, no, just kidding. Okay. Well, it really helps it with does. our visibility. It and does. It does. It's huge. It really, really, it's actually huge and it really makes a difference. And before I had a podcast, I didn't understand that. And as I was, I was always like, why is everyone with a podcast always telling me to go rate this thing? And this is why. Well, <laughs> it's, okay. To it's question, actually did you very rate, important. Did you rate yeah. and review podcast? Okay. Did you rate I reviews? Did. I mean, not all of them. Not mm-hmm. not as many as I should. I actually, once I, mm-hmm. once I had my own podcast, I went and rated and re- reviewed a bunch of podcasts because I was like, <laughs> oh, now I get it. So, oh, it's important. Anyway. Yeah. And with that, Lindsay Krause. Hello, Lindsay Cross. Welcome to our show. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So I think the the most interesting thing, like the the way that I think about you, and actually this isn't the way I think about you. I think about you entirely differently because of the catalog of work that you put out in the past year that we're going to get into. But I forgot this. I found you when you wrote this article about your ex dating Lady Gaga. You're a New York Times reporter and you actually did an op-ed for the New York Times about that experience, which is, I think, still, I followed you on Instagram. I typically don't do that when I read an op-ed in the New York Times, but it was, I think, one of the most fascinating things that I've read in a long time and also just a brilliant piece of writing. So that's how I found you. And then you actually started to write in the New York Times more consistently over the past year about what we're talking about today. And I think that's when I really got attached to your work, which was you started to explore the concept of quitting. And so that's what we're here to talk about today. You've written, I think, eight or nine articles that reference it and what's happening in our zeitgeist right now in response to the pandemic. Like you were the first person I thought of that is somewhat of an expert on this topic, or at least has stepped out and is leading the conversation. And I guess in that way, like, how did you get, I mean, why did you start writing about quitting? For me, I started writing about quitting kind of by accident. I, at the times, kind of filled this void um, in terms of coverage where I started writing about a lot of female athletes because I am, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a distance runner and obviously a woman. And so I was looking around at a lot of my friends or my peers and kind of seeing what they were doing and seeing, especially in many ways, the unconventional ways that they were finding to be successful kind of on their own terms. And a lot of times that involved quitting. It involved stepping away, often from a system that was not built for them. I mean, so many of our elite systems in this country, whether it's sports or schools or workplaces or really anything, um, they were often built by and for men if they're a center of power. And so the way that I noticed a lot of women dealt with this, at least in the athletic sphere, was to quit, um, to really step back and often to give it up for good. And then to, you know, sometimes almost by accident again, come back to it on their own terms. And often that led them to succeed more than they expected. So I think during the pandemic, I think a lot of us are have been kind of at an inflection point in our careers and looking back about, you know, through lines or themes and all the different things that we've done. I mean, for me in particular, I've had a very unconventional career at the Times and that I've, I work on our short documentary series. I produce opinion videos. I write quite a bit about a lot of things, um, culture, gender, ambition. But when I looked back over my body of work and my body of writing over the past um, 10 years, I realized I've been writing about quitting for a decade. And so kind of decided to catalyze a lot of those those thoughts and themes and observations um, this year when I think clearly that's on a lot of people's minds. I love what you were just saying about female athletes quitting and sort of realizing that this system was not built for me and I actually have the power to build my own system. Like I have the power to make this work for me. And Holly and I were both really struck by that in the pieces that you've written. and. It's one of the reasons that we didn't sell this podcast to a network 
And we decided, you know, we went and did a bunch of research and talked to a ton of people. And we learned pretty quickly that we could go with a network and we could get paid to do it. But that that would mean giving up the intellectual property and having someone else own the idea. And we were both like, you know what? No. Yeah, I think that's really smart. (laughs) One of the themes that I picked up in the narrative arc of what I've, you know, assumed the conclusions that you've come to is that there's a story at the beginning of this, which is that quitting may help you win. So when I conceptualize quitting, right, and the power of it, it's walking away from something and not giving into a system that says, you know, you need to optimize or you need, you know, like, like always building better, right? Like quitting or stepping away or giving up is something that I think is radical just in that it's not conforming. It's not like running the same line of persevering through a lot of pain or against all costs. But also when we start to set that up as like uh, quitting might, you know, like there was an article that you wrote about how like quitting might actually just help you win. Can you talk about like how you have threaded that nuance, right? Because then if you're quitting just to win, then it starts to build into this idea that like it becomes an optimization tool. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, that's a really important nuance to pick up on and uh, definitely not the message here. I think when you quit and what I've noticed, at least for a lot of the female athletes that I've covered, when they quit, they're really leaving it. I mean, that's not to say that they're you know, not participating in the sport at all. There's a lot of different ways, for example, to be a, an athlete or a distance runner and not quit altogether while still quitting the way that you're doing something in a very serious way. And then what that means is quitting the optimization element, quitting the goal-oriented element and really giving up on that. It's not to say that you'll never do it again, but that you've really let go of it. And I think the disparity that you're picking up on there is what people often talk about when they talk about failure as well and about how you fail on your way to success. That often kind of chafes me because like when you really fail, you know it. It's awful and it is not something to celebrate at the time. And I think that's an important Mm -hmm. thing to also think about when it comes to quitting. Like you're not like taking summer vacation to go back to school in the fall. Um, You are really giving up and really resetting. Again, not with dictating what your future and whatever pursuit you're quitting um, is looking like, but it's that's the only way to really reset. When I think about quitting, it's there's a finality to it because that's the only way that you really shed whatever wasn't working for you, and ideally, ultimately replace that with something new, whether it's what you were doing and just doing it in a different way or really just growing altogether. I want to have you set up what's going on culturally right now, because I think the conversation around quitting, I mean, everybody is talking about it. There's a great resignation. There's obviously a lot of like really significant individuals that quit, like Naomi Osaka that you've written about, or Simone Biles, or Molly Seidel. I mean, there's just actually really newsworthy moments where people walked away from something that felt exceptionally hard to do. So I think there's those like really big moments, but then there's also just this general people were really interested when Simone Biles quit and when Naomi Osaka quit because they started to see themselves in these things that people were doing on a really large stage and also were translating that into their own personal experience. Like there was resonance in that. Like when Naomi Mm -hmm, Osaka mm -hmm. was like, I'm not going to do the press tour for this. I don't care. I don't want to do it. And I know those were her exact words, but it was just essentially, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do this to myself because I don't like it. For me, that resonated because of my own feelings about all the stuff that I felt that I had to do to sell a book or to run a company and all the things that like cost and nick at me. And so there's this like general representation in really exceptional ways that start to show us individually that we don't have to do the same old shit that we've been doing for a really long time. So I think, can you talk just a little bit about how that works, right? Like how these like really exceptional stories of quitting, what did that do and how did that intersect with what was already going on in our society at this time? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I think that Naomi Osaka and Simone Biles kind of walking away for for different reasons when they were at the height of their game. I, I mean, they both made headlines, right? Um, and the stakes for their success had never been higher. And I wrote about both of their experiences in support of their decision. But I was really surprised that the comment sections on my coverage 
of both of what wound up being a huge controversies around their stories. It was electric. And what also really surprised me was that you could see the generational gaps around who thought their choices were right. And mm-hmm. also the demographic gaps. But it, America was clearly polarized about around these two young women. Um, yeah, just people that thought that what they were doing was great, like what you were just saying, and people who were confused at best, horrified at worst. And what um, is the horror like? But what's the horror? Like, what was the dismissiveness and what was the, like, excitement? Can you give, like, two examples of that? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, America loves toughness, right? We love pushing through at all costs. Um, We are a nation that loves to persevere um, and really praises and values that, you know, whether or not those stories are built on myths or not is is questionable. I mean, I would argue that there's some, some credence to that. I mean, we are a nation for the most part, of immigrants. And that narrative there is that we became a country by never giving up. If you look at the greatest generation, right, like World War II, they are called the greatest generation because they never gave up. Um, you do not win wars by quitting. Um, and that that's all fair, right? But athletes aren't soldiers. Um, Naomi Osaka and Simone Biles in particular, young women of color at the top of their game facing an extraordinary amount of pressure. In their case, it wasn't just that they didn't like what they were being asked to do. It's not like Naomi Osaka didn't just like the press tour. It's not like um, Simone Biles didn't want to do backflips. It was that in that moment in time, it was bad for them, not only bad for their mental health, but that translated to their physical health. Simone Biles had the twisties. She couldn't, you know, getting on that beam or doing that those floor exercises, that was going to threaten her life. Right. And I don't think that really came across um, in the narratives that we told about ourselves. I mean, for Naomi Osaka, who is to speculate in any appropriate way what the degree of her mental health struggles were? But I think both of them really struck a chord where they were threatening Americans um, who I think it not giving up can often be a proxy, I think, for telling yourself that you don't have choices, that you don't have options. I've talked about this before, about how sometimes staying the path can almost be the passive choice, right? Because you're on that path. Um, And as soon as we start to see people, again, where the stakes around their success are so high and they are walking away, I think for the rest of us, you know, wherever we are in sort of our little personal success paradigm, um, it makes us wonder, oh, can I quit too? And after you know that you can quit, you have to start wondering, should I quit? Mm -hmm. And I think those kinds of conversations that we might not even want to have with ourselves, they can be scary and uncomfortable. And so I think that's that's what was going on there as people were seeing these women making these scary decisions and actually having the courage to make them and then wondering what that meant for themselves. Right. Yes. And it disrupts the social order, right? Like it's this whole like, wait, we had a contract where we were supposed to persevere. We all supposed to persevere and like stick it out. And what are they doing? And like, how does this reflect on me? Mm -hmm. And wait, I've been miserable for 10 years, but I've stuck it out because that was the right thing to do. Or was it? Totally. So, yeah. I I mean, I think what was also interesting to me about that controversy over the summer around those two athletes is it just became very clear that our culture does not have a vocabulary for talking about these kinds of things. We look at quitting and sticking with something in a very binary way that I think is is pretty obsolete and probably not appropriate. I think there's a real need for looking at these kinds of conversations with more nuance because I think that will help us have more empathy both for the people in the public eye doing these things and the people around us doing these things and also probably for ourselves. But instead, it became this Rorschach test for different American experiences and American values that was surprising, but also not, right? I mean, Mm -mm. that's always the way of it. I was shocked. I mean, I read Simone Biles' Instagram posts and like the comment section on it. And I was absolutely because in my in my view, right, like I saw this as extremely brave and extremely heroic and it's permission giving. And I I don't know why sometimes I'm extremely naive about this, but I expect like we all saw it that way. And I think that's I mean, that's just like human experience, right? We think everyone th- like sees things the way we see it. But I was shocked at the level of vitriol and the the level of anger that was directed at her for making that choice as if she owed other people, you know, her choices and her, her decision. But it was, I mean, yeah, it was, it was extreme. I I didn't look at the comment sections on your articles, but I imagine it's the same thing. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting because there is this trickle down effect of when people 
take this kind of bold action of of quitting, for example, like when Naomi quit, Simone Biles said afterwards that watching Naomi, you know, do something different than what was expected of her stepping away gave her the courage to stand up for herself. I mean, again, whether or not either of these women actually had choices, um, you know, just what the stakes were for them in the situation, I, I can't speak to. But assuming that they did have a choice, then they were making choices that were very radical for them. Um, but it's really interesting. I mean, as you know, Mary Kane did that when she left in a, in a different way, obviously. But when she left Nike, you know, she was the fastest girl in America and was steadily struggling um, because of her coaching, um, which wasn't working for her. And so it's not like she really had a choice either when she walked away. And she she's spoken to me about this at length. But also, when the system doesn't historically stand for you, why sacrifice yourself to uphold it? And mm. I think that's what a lot of these athletes are seeing. Um, then Simone Biles does it in a growing number of younger athletes are pushing against the sort of traditional American narrative of gold at all costs, um, especially when it's at the expense of their own mental or, God forbid, physical health. So it's exciting to see people standing up for themselves and you know, deciding when to push through the pain. No, no one would question either of these athletes or any of these athletes' uh, toughness. But um, right. sometimes pushing through the pain is counterproductive. Yeah, it's exciting. And it's permission giving for those of us who are not professional athletes, you know, to apply this to our own lives and to say, like, where is the system not working for me? What power do I have that I might not have thought that I had? Do I have a choice in how I'm doing this? And knowing that, yes, maybe saying no to something or quitting something is going to upset the people for whom the system is working, right. you know, upset the people who like let people down, disappoint people and watching athletes go through this and survive and not only survive, but thrive yes. on the other side of it yeah. is extremely empowering. Yeah. Yeah. I, I completely agree. And in some ways, not surprising that it came in the middle of a pandemic, which already disrupted so much of what we'd already taken for granted. Um, I think once we realize that we can go through some changes that were involuntary, it makes us hopefully uh, look for the other parts of our life you know, that haven't changed but should and hopefully change them. Sometimes that means quitting. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk a little bit about, you did a, a video documentary for the New York Times. Um, we did a couple of them. And the first one is It's Quitting Season, which I think was incredibly brilliant. But I want to take this from, there was, you know, these obviously like exceptional cases that we all followed along and had our own personal experience with. But there's also just in general, because of the pandemic and a million other things, right, from like climate change to just, you know, social inequity to to upright. I mean, there's so many different factors converging at once. And you did a really nice job covering in five minutes um, what's been happening in our society. But people aren't just quitting the Olympics or the French Open. They're quitting religions. They're quitting relationships. Like divorce rates are at an all-time high. People are leaving organized religion. People are leaving their jobs. People are making really extreme adjustments to their lives. And that's not just because Simone Biles. And so can you talk just a little bit about what you see or what you, you've done a lot of reporting in this area. Like why is this happening and why is it happening right now? And what does that tell us about where things are moving? I think a big part of this is that that we're in this pandemic and we have gone through on a collective scale a level of disruption that most of us have, I mean, certainly not collectively gone through at least in a generation, if not more so at this point. I mean, the pandemic's, mm -hmm. but almost um, it's been two years at this point. Um, and I think I'd always thought that at some point in life, a lot of us become who we are um, and our lives get built up around whatever that is. And no matter what we might actually be capable of, this idea kind of keeps us fixed in that place. Our lives get built up around us and they keep us that way, whether it's our religion, where we live, who we live with, our relationships, who we're married to, um, who we're friends with, who our family members are, um, to the extent to which we can choose that. Our careers in some place, insofar as they also inform our identity um, in many cases. And I think I was dealing with this myself and I didn't think it was possible to necessarily change that. And... I think what quitting allows us to do is it forces us to really take stock of what all those elements of our life are um, 
again, like that that sort of inventory, however it applies to you. And it makes us really think about whether or not we want to continue to have those things in our lives. I mean, if you think about it, a lot of the paths that a lot of us are on were laid out for us when we were children or when we were in high school or college or in the few mm. years after that. Um, mm-hmm. And again, they kept us that way. And so I think a lot of us are using this disruption, this period of almost chaos to really examine those facets of our lives and perhaps to quit some of them. I think the other thing that's really exciting about that is that even if you decide not to quit, I mean, say you're married, right? And you're dissatisfied in your marriage. Just the very action of really contemplating divorce, even if you don't get divorced, you're probably reapproaching your marriage with a renewed commitment and sense of purpose as opposed to just kind of being you know, slave to the vows that you made. Um, you're actually owning your role in that in that marriage. So I think no matter what, whether you decide to quit or not to quit, just that decision is is empowering, frankly. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I wonder too, being now two years into this pandemic, where we have there are so many forces that are beyond our control yes. that are sort of inflicted upon us constantly, yes. right? And quitting is the act of taking control of an aspect of your life. And even if you choose not to quit, you know, we have now, we have the ability to look at all of these different facets of our lives and say, do I want to keep doing this or do I want to do this differently? And these are the choices that we can control where so much of the rest of our lives feels outside of our control. And I think culturally in a way that you know, certainly has never or not in my lifetime, you know, has ever been true on a collective level yep. with everybody. Yeah. And so I think that's, I mean, obviously the great resignation is in many ways about economics. Um, it's happening at all different levels. It's not not just happening among knowledge workers, but also among wage workers in the gig economy, people that are saying I've had it and trying to upgrade to make more money. And a lot of times they are, which is terrific. But it's about reclaiming the control that you have and reminding yourself that you do have choices. And I mean, in the video that I made, I was trying to be very clear about that, that quitting is not a privilege afforded to a few people. I mean, of course, economic security, of course, any security or stability that you have in your life is a privilege and does give you more choices. But that's not to say that anyone has no choices at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's about identifying the areas of your life where you do have a choice because that's different for everybody and really thinking hard about those. And again, shedding what isn't working for you that you've either outgrown or that's no longer serving you. And that's how you grow and take control back, as you said. I also think it has a lot to do with values and disillusionment. I think that there was yes. like this facade of bef- like before coming into this, there was this there, my values have shifted significantly over the past two years, just in terms of like, if this is it, this is not how I want to spend my life or yep. this mm-hmm. system is total fucking bullshit. And I don't want to contribute to it in this way. So for me, there's just been, it's not even like there was a choice involved in that. There was just a, huge shift and what I cared about and what I absolutely stopped caring about. And for me, it was like a crater. It wasn't just like a, maybe I'm going to, you know, switch to decaf or something that was, you know, subtle. It was like my whole life needs to be rethought because what's staring at us. And I think that this is like, I've been really obsessed with apocalyptic films recently. And Mm. I think that a lot of people have, like I've watched all of them because I'm fascinated by this scenario where and I wrote about this a couple weeks ago. I'm fascinated by this scenario where if it were to happen, if like I was already in the post-apocalyptic scenario, how would I actually live my life? Like what yep. if all of this stuff that like I have been trained to care about just totally went away and it was just about like the very basic things? And I think we are in some way in that like post-apocalyptic scenario without recognizing that we're in that post-apocalyptic scenario. Like Mm -hmm. climate change is here. The system is broken. The government is not coming to save you from COVID. Like there is no coordination. There is civil war. You know, there's all of this stuff that is like happening on a monumental scale. And I think we're kind of acting like it. And I think that this is potentially like, you know, what we value is changing the way that we act. But I also think that I think, yes, it's really cool that we're talking about quitting. And but I don't think it's gone far enough. Like, I still think even though there's this huge trend of quitting, I still think we're not examining to the level that we 
should be or could be given what's happening. Well, I think that's absolutely right. And I, what I hear from you when you're talking about that is this idea of um, fear. And right now, we don't really have the privilege of fear anymore. A lot of what we're scared about, as you said, we're living in that post-apocalyptic mm-hmm. landscape already. And the world has not ended like we might have feared that it would. And I think right. that's led us to think, you know, so much of quitting is about fear. It's about fear of our own relevance. Um, you want to believe that you're needed, that institutions or um, things around you, the things that you're a part of cannot go on without you. And in many cases mm-hmm. now they've had to, right? Mm-hmm. Like we are not there. Um, and I think that's, even though that's a scary thought, it's um, it's also freeing. And I think that's because we've confronted this fear non-consensually. We, we didn't want to, but we've had to. And I think it's emboldened us to think again about what else we might be afraid of and to realize that we can probably do it regardless whether or not we want to. Mm-hmm. And not only that, like our place doesn't like we're not as important to the institutions, but the inst- institutions aren't as important to us. Yes. Right. Like this idea that like mm-hmm. I really believe in this company and its yeah. mission. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, my God, this is a company. And like also, you know, like family, community, like whatever it is that are basic needs that we've completely sidelined because we've all been trained to believe, especially in America, that work is like the most important thing that we can do with our lives. Absolutely. And so I think that's it's been really helpful to people to impose boundaries on those things. I, again, I think, I mean, I haven't quit my job. I, I don't want to. I like my job. But it has <laughs> helped me to put boundaries on it, to not conflate my identity with my job and also to not do my job all the time the way I was doing um, before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And you could argue that in turn, that will make me healthier in terms of how I approach work and also happier. And then um, perhaps a more productive worker in the end for that. Mm -hmm. It's been also really sort of instructional for me to look at, read the news and look at what institutions and figures are arguing to go back to the old way. Yes. yes. And it's basically the, it's the people who stand to make the most money from it. You know, it's the people who stand to lose the most money from regular folks becoming empowered enough to quit or to rethink the role of work in their lives or, you know, whatever it is saying, no, it's the CEO of Morgan Stanley being like, no, you guys have to come back to the office. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, well, why do you want us back at the office, dude? Yeah. One of the things in It's Quitting Season that really resonated for me personally was the idea of sunk costs versus opportunity costs. And that's something that we would love for you to talk about. Like I worked in advertising for 10 years and advertising is a very demanding, you know, like you give you your, my whole identity was like, I am ad agency worker. And four years in, I knew that I was unhappy and I knew that this was not the right path for me, but I stuck it out for six more years because I was like, but I worked so hard to get here. I worked for, you know, I went to two years of portfolio school and I like busted my ass for four years and, you know, I got promoted and like, and I just kept telling myself like with the next promotion or the next agency or working on something different, things would change. And then they never did. And it turned out that what all those things had in common was me. (laughs) And like, eventually I got to a point where I was like, okay, this is wrong for me. But walking away was so hard because of that psychological thing that happens where you're like, I've invested so much yes. and like, I'm going to have to start at the bottom of something else. And like, oh my God, like I, I can't quit. And so I would love for you to talk a little bit about that. Sure. Um, and I think the the operative word that you just said there is can't. Um, mm-hmm. uh, economists call this the sunk cost fallacy and it helps explain so many decisions that we make to stick something out when we really can leave. It's this idea that you've come so far, so how can you possibly stop at this point? And also this this belief that we have that we want to have um, of our own indispensability. Um, mm. And that, that just comes because, as you said, we've invested so much time. Um, we want to believe that it meant something. And we want to tell ourselves for that reason that we can't. And so, of course, that's a trap. It lets you overlook another idea, which is opportunity cost. As you said, it's the cost of opportunities that you don't pursue because you're focused on what you're already doing. And there's there's a 
a subtle but significant penalty that comes from not pursuing those other options. Um, and that's where quitting is essential because it forces you um, to pursue those other opportunities um, and not not forsake that cost either. And I mean, that's where you have to be a smart decision maker. Uh, nobody should just go quit you know, everything in their life unless they're feeling an extreme risk tolerance, which I, I certainly don't have. But I think, again, reminding yourself that you're robbing yourself of opportunities every mm-hmm. time that you're saying, I can't do something, that's when you're you're shutting off options and, and leaving yourself in handcuffs that you don't need to be in. Mm-hmm. Across like the, your whole body of work, right? Like across from like the exceptionalism of somebody walking away like with a whole world's eyes on them versus just the, you know, the spike in divorce rates. There's a lot of stuff that's changing. And I think I have felt like as I have seen, I mean, story after story after story about the great resignation or what people are leaving behind or the different way that people are choosing to live their lives. I think that it is it's interesting. And I also wonder what you think, like where this is, what does it mean? And where is it going? Like, what does this mean for how we organize as a society, right? Like I have this sense of like what it feels like to just totally stop caring about things that held you Mm -hmm. together or things that like hold reality together or like social contracts for us. Right. And so I'm just curious. I think about this a lot. Like, what if we all just stop caring? (laughs) Like, what if we all choose to realign our values and make really radical decisions that that like hold basically our society in place. So, I mean, I don't know if you've thought about that or if you think about that, but I you have looked at this subject a lot. And so I'm curious of like where does this go? I mean, I would argue that it can go to a really great place. Again, I'm not arguing for people to just, you know, quit work and not ultimately have a job. It's about cutting out what isn't working for you and hopefully finding something better eventually um, that works better for you. And I think that's what I'm encouraging people to do is really take stock of the things in their life that they actually don't want to do, but think they don't have choices around and to quit those things. The way that I've seen this is as it being like us moving more to like a sustainable existence and a way that like we're choosing essentially like our own well be like our actual well-being not like influencer well-being but like our actual well-being to yeah uh, yeah absolutely i'll i'll end on a sort of a reflection that i have had on some reporting that i did in 2018 which was an article that i wrote about the boston marathon um in, in 2018 it was really really terrible weather and i'd watched it at my computer at my desk and after like biking to work in the rain because that's what I did that day and just thinking about how awful that must have been and as I watched on TV I saw that women like I saw that a lot of the elite men were dropping out and that a lot of the elite women kind of the same caliber they were continuing and I did this analysis Mm. where I looked and saw that the only other time that women had finished on the from the elites on downward um, had finished at higher rates is than men was the year that it was really hot. And so kind Mm. of instinctively, I knew that would be true from my own experiences, just running like I had never dropped out of a race either. And it was. And so it led me to conclude that in extremely arduous conditions, that women persevered at higher rates than men. And I wrote this piece Mm. called why men quit and women don't. And it was all about like women's perseverance as a superpower. It was about Mm. um, look at how look at women's amazing endurance. And I somehow I mean, it makes sense because of the mentality that I was in. I mean, I didn't quit anything either. Um, and and I, I was so proud of never giving up, even in times when I was hurting myself. And so I think it really took the pandemic for me to think about like, I mean, so endurance, the noun is this word that we really celebrate, but the mm-hmm. word to endure is a very painful thing. Um, mm-hmm. it's, suffering. It's, like yeah, suffering it's about it. suffering. Yeah. And that's what these women were doing. Like some of them were crossing the finish line and like they told me like they don't even remember it. Um, like that yeah. is crazy. And so mm-hmm. it made me think like, again, I was celebrating women's endurance as a superpower, but men were actually by dropping out, protecting themselves. Like, and it made me realize like, more recently that quitting is actually an act of um of self-preservation in many cases it's not cowardly it's brave and smart and more to the point it's smart and so i think that's that's certainly the the arc 
of my thinking that's evolved, um, especially someone who has been so proud of like my toughness or, you know, what yeah. any other kinds of things that I think a lot of Americans are, um, have been kind of raised to really value. And I think it's, it's reframing that kind of thing to recognize like, why, what if this hard work that I'm doing is not actually smart? Like, am I becoming a martyr to grit, so to speak? Yeah. Um, uh, and so I think that's, if more people think about that, I think society will be better off, not only from a mental health perspective, probably from a physical health perspective, and also just from people not, you know, burning themselves out for the sake of it. And so I'm excited about people thinking about these questions that, again, the pandemic has brought up for us that I don't think we'd be talking about otherwise. Um, but I think my my arc in this way is hopefully, or it seems to be what other people are having, like those epiphanies for themselves um, in their own ways. Yeah, it's funny that also brings up for me this idea that historically, for women to succeed, we needed to, the definition of that was to succeed at what white males had decided success yes. was, mm -hmm. right? And so we were having to compete on the same playing field. And then what gets internalized in us is we have to be that much better. Like we yeah. have to persevere. We have to, like, we have to be that much better in order to exist alongside them and compete with them in this world that we've created. But I think what I'm seeing and what's exciting is people are pushing back on that and saying, what if success looks completely different yep. than this idea that white dudes created of it? Yep. What if this isn't it at all? What if, what, you know, what if there's whole other ways to do things that have always been dismissed and relegated and not taken seriously? Mm -hmm. Right. Because I think, I think that's an epiphany that a lot of women have had is that there was this narrative that that was in our heads and that if we just leaned in or whatever, mm -hmm. um, right. that's right. that we would be, be, that we would be fine. But the trick is like, that is correct. You do have to be twice as good and you do have to work twice as hard. Um, you kind of have to be perfect in some ways, um, even to get a little bit of the pie. And I think the more that you realize that, the less appealing it becomes. Um, this idea that success can actually just be different, um, and still be worth attaining is, I think, certainly what's driving a lot of women to quit, you know, historically male-dominated power centers, because they're just realizing that even when you get there, it's it's not what you, you kind of wind up wondering, is this all there is? Yeah. Well, I mean, a society is like run by the, the belief systems that we have around it and the value right. we put into things. And I think what is the most exciting part of it is that value, like that value center is shifting from output and productivity and hours worked and raises and hierarchies. And it's shifting to like, just like, do you have a good life? Like our quality of life is actually starting to emerge as a thing that we value, not a thing we just balance against a ridiculous, you know, aspirational career or whatever. So I think it's, I think it's exciting. I think it's an exciting time, like an exhausting, yeah. but exciting time. Yeah, I mean, especially because if you think about what all the various revolutions have fomented in terms of like technology in the workplace, et cetera, it was supposed to make us work less because we didn't have yeah. to work as much. And instead, we just wound up working more. And I think a yeah. lot of people are realizing why like work is work, but <laughs> mm -hmm. do we want that to be our identity? And I think a lot of people are realizing we don't. Uh, yeah. Thank you, Lindsay. We have loved having you here. We love following your work. I love following your work. And I'm excited to see you keep going as you're covering this very important and relevant topic. Yeah, thanks, Agreed. guys. It was really nice chatting with you. You've been listening to Quitted, a podcast about quitting, hosted by Holly Whitaker and Emily McDowell. Our music is by Michael Blumenfeld. Our sound engineer is Adam Day. And our producer is Kathleen Kissich. Quitted is made possible by us and by our listeners. To support the show, join our patron community at patreon.com forward slash quitted. <laughs>